economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Austin Medlin, producer and graduate assistant elect for the Gortney Institute. Today we have Dr. Russ McCola, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. Okay, we're going to rely on our philosophy professor, Dr. Clark, here to lead us through a talk on infinity. Um, I guess, is it real? Is it not? I don't know where he's going to take us. So, Justin, take it away. So, um, the infinite has been uh, a really vexing and interesting problem in math going all the way back to the Greeks. And um, a lot of the paradoxes that get developed in ancient Greek philosophy, like Zeno's paradox, um, you know, rely on certain conceptions of the infinite. And I think we all use the term infinity all the time. Uh, we talk about things being infinite, but um, it wasn't actually until the last 200 years that mathematicians got really clear about what the what is meant by the infinite, and in particular, what infinity denotes, um, and whether or not there are um, different sizes of infinity, that kind of thing. And so uh, it's actually a really interesting subject. So I thought we'd kind of walk through it, give the bird's eye view of what um, the mathematical, well, the philosophy of mathematics says about what the infinite is. And you'd like to think we can weave in some faith components at some point since we're talking about the infinite. Yeah. Um, Feel free to weave. Uh, <laughs> so um, we start out usually with two different senses of the infinite. Um, we talk about infinite being um, in things being infinite in extension and things being infinite in division. So you can actually think about, you know, when you're a kid, there's usually like a number line on the classroom, uh, in, uh, on the top of the classroom. And um, the idea is that that number line doesn't just end where um, the classroom wall ends, right? It extends uh, all the way infinitely in either direction, right? So it goes one, two, three, four. The classroom wall might end at 35 or whatever, um, but we can keep counting. And um, yeah, this is a common question for my six-year-old. It's like, what's the biggest number, dad? <laughs> you know, this explanation is tough because uh, I have to say, well, whatever it is, add one to it. You got a new one. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> There's still a great sketch of Mr. Show where the, it's this mafia boss insisting that 42 is the biggest number, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, great. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when we look at that number line, we realize, oh my God, you know, you can add one to every number and get a bigger number. So what does infinity mean? Is it like biggest number or does it represent like a potential that we can get to, but for any actual number, we can always add one to it and get a bigger number. So that's the kind of um, infinite in extension that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you also might realize, hey, wait a minute, um, even between the zero and the one on that number line in the beginning of the classroom, I can divide that into one half and I can divide that one half into one quarter. And, what, and you go, well, just like there might be no biggest number out there, um, is there a smallest uh, interval there? Is there a smallest number? And so uh, we run into infinity on, on, in both of these issues. 
And so some of the ways this gets de deployed in some philosophical arguments are things like Zeno's par uh, most of Zeno's paradoxes. So one of Zeno's paradox, uh, one of Zeno's paradoxes is the idea that he has an argument that you can't ever actually um, get anywhere. Motion is impossible. Because in order for you to get from point A to point B, you would have to go, uh, you would have to cross from point A to halfway between point A and point B. And in order for you to get there, you'd have to go halfway between point A and halfway between uh, point B, right? And so you end up uh, that to traverse any section, you are actually going to have to complete an infinite number of tasks, right? And so this is his argument that motion is in fact impossible. Um, and uh, he has another argument that um, nothing, uh, another argument for motion being impossible is he says, consider like the flight of an arrow. And he goes, um, you know, at, at any point you look, is the arrow moving? Well, no, at any point in time, the arrow is at, is at, at point in space. And since for at any time the arrow is at any point, the arrow is never actually in motion, right? And so- Which, uh, which we sense falsified probably, right? Also with Planks. the, uh, well, uh, maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which you can falsify it with Planck's, uh, you know, the minimum amount, Planck's uh, minimum, but you can also just falsify it by shooting an arrow. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That's kind of, yeah. It's like we can falsify the other one by actually crossing it, the Is one of Zeno's paradoxes too that like you could never, uh, I think Achilles is the example that's used, but I don't know, like you could never catch someone in a race because before you catch up to them, you have to travel half the distance. And before you travel half the distance, you have to travel a quarter of the distance. And it's the same deal here is you'll never get to the one because you're always uh, doing the smaller intervals first. Exactly. Okay. And it's a, and this sense of the infinite is the, uh, inf is the divisibility. Uh, the infinity of divisibility, right? Um, and it turns out that we actually need this concept of infinite divisibility in order to ground calculus. Um, so when Newton and Leibniz independently invented the calculus, they used infinitesimals, which uh, are actually is actually just cheating. Um, it's saying that, you know, well, we'll just use a quantity that's so small that it doesn't matter when it's in. Uh, um, when it's added to the numerator, but when it's the denominator, you know, it, it is mathematical. For, for, for the listeners, uh, you know, a lot of calculus is like figuring out the area under a particular like line. And sometimes lines are like curvy, right? And that makes it hard to figure out the area. So one way you could figure out the area under some curvy line is you could take like a bunch of really big rectangles and, you know, see how many you can fit in and then figure out the area of the rectangles and add them all up. And you'll say, well, that's not perfect because you're going to be missing part of the curvy parts. It's like, yeah, now imagine shrinking those rectangles like as, as small as you can possibly imagine. That's all of what calculus make is. Make them real small. And then if it's not small enough for you, if you're uncomfortable with it, make it a little small. Yeah, that's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. A, I think I had a calculus teacher tell yeah. me something like that. I tell that to the students when I explain some things in the infinite. So you're right. It's the curviness of the lines that requires the calculus. Yes. Right. Um, and... Um, the thing about math is that when, uh, and this is something that like Plato was so insistent on, is that mathematical knowledge is certain because we start with axioms that we can be absolutely certain of. And then we know that our conclusions are true uh, because our deductive process is all right. The calculus was developed completely differently. Mm -hmm. The calculus said, let me cheat a little bit at the beginning. And then we end up with something and it actually ends works. up working. Yeah. And it works in a very interesting way for math because it actually 
Um, you know, our world isn't composed of straight lines. It's composed of curves, right? And it's composed of accelerating things and decelerating things. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that the calculus, though um, incredibly valuable in helping us describe actual reality, uh, didn't have a rigorous foundation because we didn't have an accurate theory of the infinite. And so um, probably the, the most important figures here, other than like Plato and Aristotle, Aristotle famously was the one who said, uh, there's no such thing as an actual infinite. Uh, infinities are only um, uh, possibilities. Hmm. Um, and that belief kind of uh, was an anchor on mathematics for like 1800 years until um, the work of like Dedekind and uh, Georg Cantor. So the two most important mathematicians in the last 300 years to talk about infinity and think about it really rigorously are Georg Cantor and Kurt Gödel. Um, and Georg Cantor um, developed the theory of transfinite math and, the, and set theory and the theory of the transfinite ordinals, which is the theory of infinity. Garrett Cantor died insane, having tried to, having thought about infinity and thought the theory of uh, transfinite numbers into existence. There's so many stories of the brilliant mathematicians going insane. So it's... Kurt Gödel, uh, who proved the um, uh, incompleteness of arithmetic, also did a bunch of work on the theory of infinity, and he ended up with some results about the continuum hypothesis, which we'll talk about at the very end today. Um, Kurt Gödel also died insane, having starved himself to death trying to figure out whether or not uh, I can't. I'm too busy. I can't eat. The continuum, uh, the continuum uh, is the same as a left one, um, which won't make sense until the end either. But one um, one of the things that we're trying to do when we talk about the infinite is we talk about how big things are, and so one of the things about math that's really difficult is how abstract it is. And when we're talking about numbers. We're talking about uh, you know which numbers are bigger than other numbers, and you know we all kind of just memorize it, you know. But um, there's if we want to figure out which numbers are bigger than other numbers, we want a definition that allows us to do that that doesn't itself depend on the concept of number, right? Because then it would be circular. Um, and so the way we figure out whether or not two sets of things have the same number. Um, without counting one and counting the other, because that would be cheating, right? Um, that would be depending Decent on the concept numbers. of number. Yeah. Um, one way we could do this without depending on the concept of number is to try to match them up with each other, right? You can think of like- you know, Poker chips comes to mind. Uh, poker chips, which, which stack's got more? Boys and girls at a dance, right? Yeah. If you want to know if there's this uh, same amount of boys and girls at a dance, mm. so it's boys pair up with the girls. Um, and if there's any boys left over, we know there's more boys than girls. And if there's any girls left over, we know that there's more girls than boys, right? Um, so uh, that- And this is what you referred to as set theory earlier? This no? is uh, a part of set theory, okay. but um, this was actually developed as uh, a definition of equinumerate before set theory. Okay. Um, so this shows up even in Hume, who's okay. trying to define number and says, sure. let's say that two things have the same number if there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between one class and another sure. class, okay. which later turns into one set into another set, right? Um, so we know this, the set of boys has the same number, is equinumerate to the set of girls. If we can put the boys in one-to-one -one correspondence with the girls, for every boy, we can match up a girl and vice versa, and there's nothing left over. Now, um, we might think think back to our number line here and our numbers, and we might think, hey, wait a minute. 
this seems like this might have some uh, paradoxes here because every square, like uh, nine, 25, right? Um, it seems like those show up less often in the number line than all the other numbers, right? Mm -hmm. But I can put the squares into one-to-one -one correspondence with the integers because every inch, you just square every integer, right? And yeah. so every single integer um, is going to be paired with a square. As a squared pair. Yeah. Four, the squares four is paired with 16, five is paired mm -hmm. with 25. Yep. Even, even though it seems like there's should be less squared numbers than yep. regular integers, right? One of these numbers, series of numbers gets bigger at a faster rate than the other one right. does, right? Yeah. But separation. any integer you pick, will be paired with a square, will be paired with its square, right? And sure. any square will be paired with its square root, which will also be an integer. And so uh, this seems weird, right? Because it seems like, uh, and this was used as a proof at one point that like our, we, we don't understand infinity, right? Because now it seems like we're saying these two things have the same, there's an equal number of squares as there are an equal number of integers. That seems crazy because the squares show up less often than the integers do. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Six is not a square of anything, or nothing Nothing squared is equal no to six. No integer. Yeah, squared. no integer. So uh, not using decimal points, one, two, three, four. So there's lots of numbers where that's true, right? Seven is not anything squared. Eight is not anything squared. And so it seems like there's not, there's a lot of numbers that aren't anything squared. And yet we can match off every single integer with a squared so it seems like there's the same amounts and so it's weird that there's a lot of numbers that aren't the squared of something and yet there is a squared for every number and there's the same amount like that that seems wrong yeah and then according to count according to this definition of countability then the squares and the natural numbers um, have the same cardinality right they have the same number right so for a while this was taken as an argument that this can't be Something must be wrong. Yeah, right. something's contradictory here because we can literally find numbers for which they aren't the squared. They're just normal integers with no, uh, they're not squared of anything. Uh, but the two sets are equal in size. Well, one thing Cantor did, um, so remember one of the questions that we were asking at the beginning is, are some infinities bigger than other infinities, right? Um, and you might think, okay, here's an example then uh, of an infinity that's bigger than another infinity. But this is not the move that Cantor makes, and this is not what you. Uh, this is not what mathematics says about infinity. Mathematics says no, no, no. This isn't um, a paradox. Mm -hmm. This is actually a rigorous argument. A set is infinite if it can be put in one-to-one -one correspondence with a proper sub subset of itself. Which is just to say that it is actually true that. Uh, there are as many squares as there are natural numbers because you can put them in one-to-one -one correspondence with each other. And there's an infinite number, equal infinite number. Well, I don't even know if you'd use the word equal. The set is itself infinite. The set of squares is infinite. The set of uh, integers is infinite. And you, uh, these infinities are the same size because you can put them in one-to-one -one correspondence with, with each yeah. other. Um, which again seems wrong because we know there are integers that are not squares, but all squares are integers. And so it seems like there should be more. 
uh, integers than squares. It's yeah, except when if we have this method for pairing them off in this right. way, we'll see that every every single yes. one has a pair. Yeah. Right. Um, so you might think, okay, well, let's try to find a, a set that's bigger than the set of of integers, right, or the set of natural numbers, because we've just we've just been doing one, two, three, four, five. Right? No decimals. No one. Um, but what if we start with uh, what if we do the integers? Um, that is, uh, the natural numbers start at one and go forward. What if we have the infinity going both directions then? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe then we go, okay, that, that is somehow bigger. Um, but we can actually come up with a way to order these such that they are paired off with the natural numbers too. We can go zero, negative one, one, negative two, mm -hmm. two, negative three, three. Yeah. And so it turns out then also that uh, the integers are going to also to be equinumerate to the natural numbers. Right. So and that's why infinity divided by negative infinity is negative one. They're equal. The two infinities are equal in size. Oh, yeah, I don't want to get to the, okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, so you might think, well, what about uh, the rationals or fractions? Um, so, um, we said that, uh, you know, what if we try to include all the rational numbers? So this includes not only one, two, three, four, five, but one eighth, one sixteenth, et cetera. <clears throat> Can you, is there a way to put those in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers? And it turns out that there is, right? You can uh, think of like a matrix and you can take a uh, run along the one side, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. And you can run along the top, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. In, in an infinite uh, direction. And then you can zigzag your way through the matrix such that, directions. Uh, yeah, a, where you put the ones on the left above the ones on the right, and you will end up with every single fractioned uh, number possible. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way of putting the fractions or um, all uh, rational numbers into one-to-one -one correspondence with, um, with the integers. And that's really weird because if you can do that with the rational numbers, um, then you can also do that ra with rational Cartesian coordinates, right? Because those are also just pairs of numbers. Um, and that means that there are as many rational Cartesian coordinates in, a, uh, in any plane, um, in the square plane from one to one, as there are on the number line between uh, zero and one. So this is weird. Um, and you might think it, it looks like we have come up with our idea of infinity. Um, it seems really hard to come up with any uh, set or anything that we can name that would be bigger than this. Um, but what Cantor proved, and we should do this after the break, is that there is a set that is uh, bigger than the infinity that we have just been talking about so far. All right, if your mind is not blown yet, then we've got another round to go here in the second half. And we'll start to talk about uh, the infinity of God in some capacity too. So we thought we'd try to wrap our brains around how the, the geniuses have dealt with infinity. And then we'll maybe think about biblical infinity as well. We'll be back in just a bit. If you're a high school student interested in earning some college credit, we have an online microeconomics class for motivated high school students seeking to earn early college credit. It's affordable, flexible, and layered with support. Our new online microeconomics course is optimized for dual credit 
and will increase your students' college readiness. Contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. Ottawa University is offering free classes for homeschool students in the Ottawa area. Uh, these classes will go through some basic economics, you could call it an economics 101 course, where we'll go through, through things like supply, demands, uh, and other similar issues. Uh, if you're interested in this, either inside or outside the Ottawa area, contact Peter Jacobson today. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy interesting but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. All right, so we're back. Uh, I don't know about you, but my mind is stimulated, but maybe tiring a bit thinking about the infinite. So Justin, where do we go from here? So what we've been saying so far is that all of these classes of infinities that we've been talking about, um, whether it's the, or the classes of numbers, we've been talking about natural numbers, rational numbers, Cartesian coordinates. Um, we've said they've all been able to put them in one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers, one, two, three. And that's another way of saying we can, at least in principle, count them in that we can start counting them. And even though we might never finish, we have an order in which we can count them, right? We can put them in a list, um, even though that list might not might never end. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's uh, countability. Um, and we can say that these types of infinities um, are countable. That's what it means in mathematics for something to be countable is that they are at least in principle, it's possible to put them into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. Okay, so let's hold on to that idea for a second. Um, and let's go back to this idea of um, the number line that we talked about. And we talked about, um, I don't know if we brought up this uh, the term before, but uh, the number line is typically thought of as the continuum. It means it goes on forever um, in both directions. And it not only goes on forever in both directions, it is infinitely dense. Um, the closer you look, um, there is always, you know, between any two points, there is another point on the number line, right? Um, and that's also weird because we also say every point is next to another point on the number line. But between any two points, there is another point. Sure. Um, so um, th these types of proofs are sometimes easier to do geometrically. But remember, um, to say that two things have the same number in mathematics is to say that you can put them into one-to-one -one correspondence with the other. So think about like a three, four, five right triangle. Um, so a triangle that has the sides three, length three, length four, and the hypotenuse is length five, right? Okay. Um, a squared plus B squared equals C squared? Yes. Uh, so if we take the three as the triangle's base, um, we can see that for every single point on that uh, length of three, we can draw a vertical line. And that's going to intersect with one and only one and only one point on the line on its hypotenuse, which is of the length five, right? And we can also do that by if we take any point on the length of the five line, um, we can drop a, a line straight down and it will intersect with one and only one point on the length of line that is three long. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. 
Well, that's kind of weird too, because what we've just proved there uh, geometrically rather than algebraically is that for any point on a line segment that has length five, there is a corresponding individual point on a line segment with point three. Um, and that means that you can put all of these points into one-to-one -one correspondence with each other. And therefore that there are as many points on a line that has a length uh, five as there are <laughs> on a line that has a length three. So you're trying to imply that it seems like there's a finite number of points along this line, but I'm thinking it's not like, only is there an infinite an number of points. An infinite number of points, um, but it almost seems we, like- We start out agreeing that there's an infinite number of points, okay. but- um, we got the whole those, correspondence. Those infinities are the same size. Okay. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way. Okay. Maybe this is not a good. I'm not trying to argue against math here, but like if you overlap <laughs> the lines, you, you lose. You have a different time. story, right? Like yeah. It, this only works because the lines are at an angle to each other and they stop at the same. Like you know that their x is equal, uh, but that doesn't mean their length is actually equal, right? Huh? Like, it doesn't mean the length is equal. No, we start out having the length is different. Yeah, they, but you have if, an equal if you flatten infinite. the hypotenuse, that's no longer true. Is what if I'm you saying. flatten the hypotenuse, then that's no longer true. And you can, but you can break off that remainder that's left, mm -hmm. and you can prove that that remainder has the same amount of points in it that uh, that either of the pieces that you were left with do. It is a feature of any line that is a continuum. Um, yeah, that it has the same infinite Infinity. number of points yeah. as any other like sure. infinite continue. number of points between and what's even weirder that is, is that weird. um <laughs> well it gets weirder because think about the number line that we said we've just been talking about line segments right yeah um, let's use the actual number line which extends forever in both directions right and now instead of thinking of a triangle let's think of a semicircle right um, now using the same method that we just did mm -hmm. we can show that um, the curve of the semicircle has the same amount of points as the base of the semicircle does, right? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, it all, you can point a straight line from it, and it'll get somewhere on the point curve. a directly vertical line from each one of them yeah. that will hit uh, directly vertical. Okay. Now, now we'll do some angled lines. Sure. Because now let's take the number line that extends infinitely in both directions sure. and place it tangent on top of the semicircle. Does that make sense? So you're putting a big number line on top of a semicircle. Yep. Uh, we're putting the continuum extended in both directions on yeah. top of the semicircle. Yep. Yeah. And now you will be able to draw and a this line. Is a half, the semicircle is a half, half circle. circle, which seems to have an ending. Okay, I see where you're going with this. And now you will be able to draw a line from the center of that semicircle that will intersect any point on the extended number line. Sure. Infinite in both directions, right? Um, and that will intersect in only one point of the set, uh, the semicircle, right? Yeah, yeah. But we've also just proven that that semicircle only has the has exactly as many points as um, its base. Yeah. And so this is really, really wild because this proves that uh, the continuum. Not only do segments of the continuum have the same amount of points, <laughs> but each segment of the continuum has the same amount of points as the continuum itself extended listeners i hope you're drawing pictures because i am on my notes as we go so uh it might be helpful is this and, looking like the semicircle you're talking about this one okay so not like a sunset but the opposite of a sunset if yeah. you were to try and picture that yeah. in your head okay like i'm with you on yeah. top of the semicircle so um 
note, no, note now, though, that we've been talking kind of about two different kinds of infinities. One was that we were talking about like classes of numbers, and this, this one we've been talking about is the continuum, right? Um, and we might wonder how these two things actually are related to each other. Because um, there are actually some numbers that are going to be on the continuum that aren't rational numbers, sure. right? Like pi is an irrational number. Uh, pi is actually a transcendental number. Uh, the square root of two is an irrational number. A rational number is a number that you can um, represent as the ratio of two integers, right? Um, so irrational numbers, you can't do that. Square root of two is one of those. There are also some numbers that aren't even the solution to like binomial equations, I think is the definition of it. And those are transcendental numbers. It's like pi is a transcendental number. Our, def our definition of pi doesn't even have a number in it, right? Um, or doesn't even have a, an integer in it. Yeah, um, that's why you could do like a memorizing pi competition because there's no way to write a formula such that you could just generate digits yeah. by, take a lot by of, hand or something. Yes, yes. Contests are yeah. crazy how many digits people can go out. Like the world record is insane. Yeah. Um, and so the continuum has all those points on it too, in addition to all the rational points, right? Mm -hmm. And so we might wonder, can <laughs> we put the points on the continuum into one-to-one -one correspondence with uh, the natural numbers. That is, is the continuum that we've been talking about, or remember, we've just proved that any segment of the continuum has the same amount of points as uh, the continuum extended. Is that the same size of infinity as the natural numbers? And uh, Cantor proved via a pretty ingenious argument that the continuum is larger than uh, the class of natural numbers. That is, it is impossible to put the points on a continuum into one-to-one -one correspondence with the natural numbers. Uh, the continuum is what it's called an uncountable infinity. So the first, um, so Cantor came up with this whole system of symbols for these different sizes of infinities, just like we use the tick mark for one and the, you know, the mark looks like a two to denote two. Cantor's has Aleph null, which is, the name for the for uh, the size of infinity that is the um, uh, the natural numbers, right? Which is also the size of the infinity of the integers, et cetera. Cantor proved that the continuum is at least uh, of a higher cardinality. That means can't be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with the integers. And his proof is kind of ingenious. He says, let's assume that it's a, so it's a, uh, reductio proof. It starts by assuming that we can do it, and then it shows that that results in an impossibility. Uh, Cantor says, suppose we could uh, put these uh, numbers in a list, which is just what we were doing when we said we put them into one-to-one -one correspondence with the rationals. Mm -hmm. And Cantor says, then suppose we go through that list and um, we extend, for every number, we extend the decimals all the way out, right? Um, and for the first number in that list, we change the first digit. We add one to it. He did it in uh, uh, binary, so it was just switching zeros to ones and ones to zeros. But for the first number, and remember, these uh, each number in this list is going to go on just forever like just to extend them, right? Yeah. Um, for the first number, we change the first digit. For the second number, we change the second digit. For the third number, we change the third digit in that in that number's uh, enumeration, and for the fourth number, and so on. And then we collapse all of those digits that we changed and we use um, each of those changed digits to make a new number. 
by definition, this number is going to be different than every single number on that list because it's going to differ from every number n uh, at point n in that number. You lost me. <laughs> okay, so um, that makes two of us. Let's I was say on there, I think. So if the first number in the list is uh, um, one, we're going to change the. We're going to add one to it. We're going to okay. change one to two. Yep, if the I'm second number on that list is one point two, we're going to change the second number in that number. 1. So it's going to be one point three, yep. right? Yep. Um, I'm there. So we change that number, and then we add that change number to the number that we're creating. Does that make sense? We change the number so, and we add. So it'll be 1.2 plus 1.3 type of thing. So I, I guess I shouldn't have said change because that implies that we're changing the list. We're not changing the list. We're creating a, creating new, number a new number from number. the list. Yes. Using a so we start with the list and we say yeah. the first list is one. All right, so we'll take one, add one to it. We'll have that be the first digit of our new number. Yep. Second uh, number, we change. The, we add, take the second digit of the second number in our list and we add one to it and we make that part of our new sure. number. By definition, this number that we create will be different from every number on our list yeah. because it will differ from every number at the nth spot. Yes, yeah, right? Okay. And so sense. that will create a new number that will somehow fit in our list but won't have been enumerated so far by definition. Okay. So it will be irrational um, because it will go on forever, mm -hmm. right? Um, and what this just shows is that there's there are many, many more uh, irrationals than rational numbers. R irrational numbers actually take up most of the space on the continuum. And that the continuum is so dense and that uh, uh, the infinity that the continuum denotes is much, much bigger than the infinity that we were talking about when uh, we were talking about um, uh, the number line, uh, sorry, the natural numbers because it can't be put into one-to-one -one correspondence. So is it with the semicircle and the continuum, the semicircle has a one-to-one -one match with the continuum, but there's actually more numbers in between. The density of the continuum is bigger, but no. there is still a one-to-one -one with the no. semicircle. The semicircle, the base of the semicircle, and the continuum above the semicircle, those all have uh, the cardinality of the continuum. Those are all the same size of infinity. But if the continuum includes irrational numbers, and you've said there are more irrational numbers on than uh, in integers, natural numbers, or, or uh, that continuum set, that how does how do those two things square? You know what I'm saying? No. So you said there's a you've said there's a one to one correspondence between the semicircle and the continuum. You've the also yes. the infinities are equal. With yeah. Each other, you've so also, and you've also said the continuum includes irrational numbers. So does the semicircle. Okay. Semicircle is going to have a bunch of irrational numbers on okay. it too, right? Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so does the base of that. Okay. Uh, in fact, between, right. between so zero and one, there are going dense. to be an infinite number of irrational okay. numbers, right? Sure. So for any irrational number you can take, you can also do one over that ir irrational number. Sure. And that's sure. going to be in there too. Yeah. Um, so uh, what this proves is that the continuum has an order of infinity that is uh, of a higher cardinality that is that's bigger than the cardinality of the integers. Um, and that which means we have countable. Which is the countable, continuum. yeah. Yeah, so there's countable infinities and uncountable infinities. Um, the continuum is uh, uncountably infinite, whereas the natural numbers are countably infinite. Listeners, if you're still with us, we have some sort of heaven coming into the play here. Actually, almost exactly, <laughs> right? Um, 
So when we talk about the geniuses of uh, math, the people who, uh, like Leibniz, who developed the calculus, um, uh, he's kind of iffy, but especially Cantor and uh, Gödel, who all these people were very strong mathematical Platonists, and they were all uh, believers in the divine. And they thought that mathematical entities were real in the sense that um, they were created by God and we discovered things about them. We didn't just make it up. Mm. This is in direct contrast to like the program of formalism that was being undertaken by, uh, that was popular in the 20th century. Um, that just says mathematics is just formal symbolism. It, it doesn't denote anything. Uh, both Cantor and Gödel thought, no, the sets are real. Um, uh, they are in some sense created by God. Uh, they were, both of them were uh, religious, although weirdly religious, um, <laughs> but uh, they were both what's, what's called math mathematical Platonists. And this is the idea that there is, uh, that mathematics is real, at least in some sense, and real uh, like capital R real, not something that we right. make up. Right. And um, this flew in the face of a kind of dogmatic empiricism that said the world is only physical. Um, and since the world is only physical. Yeah, uh, that's interesting because that if it is real, that implies there's like there's a way of discovering things that's not empirical, right? Exactly. You, you can uncover truths without the scientific method, if that's true. Yeah. Because the numbers are real and you're not using the scientific method to find those reals. Therefore, there, there are things for which there's a, a non-scientific method way of discovering real things. Sure. Yeah, okay. uh, a physical in, uh, reality that's independent of the physical world about which we can know things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, however difficult and mind-bendingly weird some of these things might be to know. And so uh, there is still an open question in mathematics about whether or not there are any uh, cardinalities of infinity in between the cardinalities of the integers, which is Aleph null, and C, which is the cardinality of the continuum, right? Um, whether or not there are sizes of infinity in between those. Um, <laughs> that's still an open question in math. It's called the continuum hypothesis. It's been proven to be independent of the axioms of set theory, so it could go either way. Um, um, and uh, it's just kind of fascinating to think about that, like that um, if these are names for numbers, but there are numbers that we're like, can, we can barely wrap our heads around. Um, you can think of uh, the position that uh, humanity might have been in a really long time ago when we were actually developing or even to, to talk about the actual natural numbers and how weird it is. You can mm -hmm. talk to elementary school teachers about how you try to teach kids about what numbers are. You start out with numbers of things and then you substitute the symbol for the thing. And then eventually you kind of trick kids into talking about <laughs> numbers um, independently of the numbers of things that they're uh, talking right. about, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, There's kind of a concreteness of finiteness to it the way it's taught. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, we're doing a place value with Cedar right now. And so to do place value, you we have to do, Haley's uses a technique called place value village, uh, which is where you can get like you know, you've got a one's house and a tens house and, you know, uh, we don't have infinite houses, but in theory, you could a hundreds house, a thousands house, all that. And, you know, the rule that she's teaching is, well, once we put nine and she's got these little like, you know, you put them in like vases, they're not quite marbles, they're like half marbles. She's got those little things. Uh, and if you put nine in the one's house and you add one more, you have to take them all out and put one in the tens house. Right. Uh, so even that is like I'm using a physical object to represent this abstract idea of a group of ten. 
and so, yeah, yeah, it's, that, that's interesting that we're like, you have to force them to do it with the objects and then slowly you remove the objects over time. Yeah. And not, not only that, but like it's, we deal so easily with numbers now. Um, but you can imagine this was actually a huge uh, obstacle to overcome in human history. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it should make us, uh, you know, we can think about, you know, are, is, are there beings for whom dealing with the infinite integers, you know, we say we don't know whether or not there's a number in between Aleph null and C. We don't know <laughs> if that's if C is Aleph one or if it's Aleph 10 or whatever, you know, you could like that might sound as dumb as, you know, somebody like, Okay, we figured out that there's a number one. Is there something between ten and twenty? Yeah, like, there's I something between. I've, we also found three. Yeah, yeah. Is there something between three and one? Like our best minds we, are at work. We know this. we can have two in the tenth place, and we can have one in the tenth place. But can we have one in the tenth place and five in the ones place or not? <laughs> yeah, is fifteen real? Uh, and I you're think, asking like, about fifteen over here. So there's also another mathematician's name is Paul Erdos, and uh, you know mathematicians today often brag about their Erdos number, which is like, have you authored a paper with somebody who authored a paper with Paul Erdos? Hmm. Um, <laughs> Degrees of separation. Yeah. Uh, so he was one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century. He had this idea that, look, the good mathematical proofs are so clean and so pure. Um, he thought that God wrote the language of the universe in mathematics. And when he found a particularly clean uh, proof, he would say, oh, that one's from the book. Uh, and by that, he meant like that one's from God's book, right? Um, <laughs> And so this idea that there are, there is a way, there's not only, not only are there things to be grasped that we can only like see through a glass darkly, or, you know, we don't grasp very well, um, but that it's possible for there to be um, real infinities and minds that are uh, completely incapable of like, us understanding them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that the greatest mathematical minds have been insistent upon. Right. And I think it flies in the face it of it. Proof of God, essentially. Yeah. And, and real uh, evidence of God. Yeah. And it kind of flies in the face of this um, kind of banal and uncreative, like materialism that sure. says uh, we, it's, you know, we know everything and it's we, all about the numbers and we know how to not only do we know everything the stuff we don't know we know how to find we, out yeah we that. have the method right. for finding the answers to all the problems yeah. and, and listeners if you like this podcast and i know we've gotten a little thick but there's a great book called the god hypothesis and uh he goes through i think uh, just my gut feeling is a, a few of these arguments are there but it also brings up quantum theory and and uh, a lot of other things that really he argues is evidence of God. So it's, I think there's other avenues of uh, physics and other areas that kind of touch on these types of topics. Just to have one more question, even though I know we're running out of time here, so maybe you can't answer it. Uh, the one thing that I was a little skeptical of in your proof is like by using like geometric, like a geometric response. And so like we can have two shapes that are maybe they're like the same shapes, but they're of different sizes. And it seems like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's because I'm not like I'm not looking under a close enough microscope microscope, but it seems like there are parts of the area of the larger shape that you couldn't pair off with parts of the area of the smaller shape. Like all the all the area of the smaller shape you can pair off into the larger shape. But by definition, then you have some leftover stuff that can't be paired off. Is that wrong? Yeah, because you, if you do it the other way, you can pair it off the other way, right? So uh, all that all that 
Um, but that would be true if you had two things of different size, right? That one thing could be paired off against one, but the other thing couldn't be paired off against. Yeah, is that not what you were saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and so it seems like one is larger than like the there's, it, it seems like from what you're saying, it shouldn't be the case that one of these has a larger number of things in it than the others based on like the continuum and the semicircle. There shouldn't be. But like when I'm thinking of the space, it seems like there is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. It's because But it's not. It's a okay. continuum is that dense that any piece of it contains as much as. And that, know, so that would be true if the continuum down. ran up and down. So you're taking so, yeah. kind of the area of two shapes. One is bigger than the yeah, other. One triangle is bigger than the other. Triangle. It seems like it's if you area. circled all yeah. the areas yeah, on the shape and you paired them off, there'd still be some leftover from the bigger one. But I think what Justin's saying is actually no. Like if you went small enough, you could find another one's pair off. Right? Actually, yeah. so dense. And yeah. uh, I know that I've been using geometric proofs here, but you can also prove this algebraically. It just makes doesn't make for a good podcast sure. you can't like think, do it in your head <laughs> and this podcast is maybe questionable so listeners if you're still with us we'd like to thank you for listening i think it's been fun but yeah we might have gone off on some uh, geeky tangent but thank you justin for i love it so and i know there's going to be at least a handful of listeners maybe even more that love it too so i uh, would like to thank you all for listening to this uh podcast a production of the gordon institute here at ottawa university uh, please forward it along to others that might like to listen to something like this as well and check out our other podcast titles. We got lots of fun stuff that we talk about. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.